Welcome to the Scaling Japan podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Batino, and I would like to thank Hashi Media for sponsoring this episode on B2C market entry. Leo, Dustin, and Steven, and the team at Hashi Media have helped major brands like Asus, Subway, and Alibaba, but they also support small to medium sized businesses with their social media and influencer marketing needs in Japan. Support the podcast, but more importantly, yourself by checking them out at hashimedia.com. H A S H I media.com. And on today's episode, we have Paulina Oba. She is the COO of Gourmet Pro, the largest food and beverage consulting network in Japan, which helps many brands to enter the Japanese market. She also has a master's degree on sustainable food supply chains. I have invited Paulina today to help us better understand Japanese consumers based on her wide range of experiences of helping companies target many different customer segments in the Japanese market, in the food and beverage industry. And this is not our first guest from Gourmet Pro. We also had one of her coworkers. Vincent Nicole to talk about crowdfunding and distribution in Japan. So glad to have you on the podcast, Paulina. Hi, Tyson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to join you today and to share about the Japanese consumers and a little bit more about their behavior and attitudes. But before that, I would love to share a little bit more about me and also Gourmet Pro. So, my background is in sustainable food supply chains. And I've been working in the food and beverage industry in the past two, three years together with my team. So a couple of years ago, we found Gourmet Pro. This is a global network of food and beverage experts that are focusing on supporting clients with their end-to-end initiatives. So we started in Japan. So our network here is quite robust, especially in sectors such as spirits, wine, and also health and organic food. Late last year, we also started expanding globally. So now we cover regions in APAC. We are in East Asia, so Japan, South Korea, and China. In Southeast Asia, mainly in Singapore, Philippines, Thailand, and Vietnam. Also India in South Asia. In West Europe, we are more covering the Western part. So UK, Italy, Spain, Denmark, France, Belgium, and so on. And lastly, our key market is in the U.S., in North America. So our main goal is to cover everything within the food and beverage space. So from market entry, business development, trade marketing, new product development, digital marketing. So we really try to cover a wide spectrum of services. And what we try to do is to have a cross-border support. So we usually try to provide help and work with clients that are out of their local market or out of their well-known regions so we can better support their initiatives. So we do support clients from different sizes as long as they're in the food and beverage space. I'm very excited to join you today and share a little bit more about the Japanese consumers. Yes, I'm very excited to dive in and to learn a little bit more about the B2C space and specifically just how different demographics have different behaviors and purchasing patterns. I think one of the key points of direct-to-consumer or selling to the consumers is really understanding who is actually buying your product and why are they buying your product. 
one way of solving that is through a buyer persona. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to jump first in, could you share with the audience, what is the buyer persona? The buyer persona, simply put, is your ideal target audience. And this point is one of the most important things people should keep in mind when going to a new market, especially Japan. I know that previously with my colleague Vincent, you were discussing more about the distribution channel and brand perception. And this is actually quite closely intertwined with your ideal persona on the local market. And one of the questions I always ask my clients is, who are you targeting in Japan? Because if people don't know the answer to that question, it's quite difficult to develop your strategy here. Some important points that we should consider when developing this ideal buyer persona is, first of all, what type of age group are you targeting? Maybe you're targeting the young female who is really open-minded and ready to try new products, or you're trying to get to the silver generation with the purchasing power, like large purchasing power in Japan, and really health conscious. So it's very important to navigate through that. Also, Japan is very specific market in terms of the age. Everybody knows that it's rather aging population. So there is a really huge gap between the younger generation and the older one. So just defining exactly where you want to aim at is very important. Also in Japan, the location is very important. You know, there's those conglomerate cities like Tokyo and Osaka, where within the city, there's different areas where the population is different. For example, in Tokyo, when you go to Shibuya or Harajuku, it's full with young people and really even small segregated groups with different types of behaviors. When you go to Minato or Minatoku, there's, or Meguruku, there's more expat or more international type of audience. If you go to suburban areas, is more family-oriented or going towards elderly. So location is also a big point. What you need to consider also, would you target a large market like Tokyo, where cost is high to penetrate, or would you test your product in Fukuoka, where you can get access to a lot of different target groups in a very small type of landscape? Another point that I also recommend considering is the language. Everybody knows that Japan has a really huge language barrier. Everybody speaks Japanese here and just simply, for example, introducing your product in English and everything is in English or your even local language is a little bit ignorant because then the local consumer is not going to be able to understand your concept at all. When also thinking about your buyer persona, one of my favorite points to consider is actually people's interest and occasions of using products. When professionals are targeting the local market in Japan, they are thinking, okay, in my local market, I sell my product to young females that are enjoying barbecue. But for example, if you think about the Japanese young women, where are they spending their time? Is it at the barbecue place that, you know, at the beach? Maybe. But for example, there are some specific local occasions that are very unique for the market. An example could be the Joshikai or Joshitabi, meaning that Joshikai is more the women meeting where women enjoy spending time with their girlfriends, going to some nice place, spending a bit more to enjoy a nice cocktail or some nice food or treating themselves with a nice product. 
or Joshi Tabi, where they just enjoy traveling with their girlfriends and try to enjoy really different and engaging experiences. So thinking about those type of market-specific occasions that characterize your buyer persona locally, it's very, very important before you know you already start selling your product here. Of course, there are some other factors to consider, such as the purchasing power or the stage of life of your target audience. So it's a very kind of complex, but yet interesting concept to consider when coming to the Japanese market. I think you gave a great explanation. And to add some points, I would probably recommend to, if you do create a buyer persona, use an actual photo of a person who really represents that. So it's easy to communicate. So you may have a persona, person in mind, but to communicate it to other people on your team, it's really useful to have that. I also want to mention, just based on my experience of doing marketing and helping people with their marketing, if someone brought a buyer persona to me, even if it's not perfect or even it's the one they use in their home country, it would really help a marketer in crafting and creating you know, the right type of ads, the right visuals. It really goes a long way. So making a persona does take time. It might take like 10 hours, possibly more. But once you get it done, I think so many other things can go smoothly. It can also prevent you from making some big mistakes. As you were mentioning, you added some points like marketing or adjusting your communication. And just to link there with also your previous talk with Vincent about, uh, you know, the brand perception or the right distribution. So reaching to your target audience at the right channel, at the right time, at the right places, also kind of integrated with this target person. Because when you, for example, put a picture of, a young woman that, for example, likes to go to the yoga center twice a week and, you know, she's really enjoying a snack right after at a location right next to it. Is it a high-end supermarket and so on? So having this whole persona together with their experience mapped out is very, very helpful with the distribution channel, with the marketing, with the brand perception. So as you said, it takes time, but it's very, very important. And I like how you mentioned that also kind of writing down, like, what are some other things they're consuming? Mm-hmm. They'll give you, or even the marker, just like, these are some brands we can study to better promote our product in Japan, because that's what they're consuming. Exactly. So also looking at adjusting products or lifestyle and kind of the whole, everything around this person or that you have in mind is so crucial indeed. Sounds good. So I guess, yeah, now that we got persona, what are the different types of consumers in Japan? And if possible, maybe share with some like the averages for budget or consuming behaviors. When we talk about the consumers in Japan, so there are a lot of different factors or a lot of different points that we can divide them by. So if we think about, first of all, type of household, let's say in Japan, the majority or about 60% of the households are with couples. So either they have children or they're living alone or with their pets and so on. It's very important because how the behavior of a couple is in Japan is different than the one in maybe abroad, considering you know the different jobs, decision-making power and so on. Of course, we also have 35% of the households are one person. So that's also his a really heavy influence on the purchasing behavior and the type of products people are buying. 
Another category that we also split up the types of consumer is also the type of budget. So the majority of the population, let's say from 25 to 55, have a really strong purchasing power and is getting even stronger with the older population. But for example, when we think about the younger ones, which I'd like to cover a little bit later, for example, the high schoolers, which are trendsetters, then the budget is really less. So how can we be creative in touching this type of segment? Another also way of segregating is by their consumer's perception or lifestyle. So I want to cover, for example, three really big groups. The first one is more the family-oriented one. Those are people that usually live either with their parents or with their children or with their partner. They focus more on the well-being of the whole family. They're not really conscious about their status or they don't want to show up and distinguish themselves among their peers and prefer to follow the trendsetters. So that's a really large percent of around 30% of the mainstream population. We also have another group, which is quite large, which is more around the adventurer type, if I might say. So for example, those are people that really enjoy new products. They're more open for new services. I would say they're the trendsetters. They enjoy living abroad or they've been abroad or they wish to live abroad. So those are the people that are curious about international products. And it could be an interesting entry point from the consumer target. The third group I wanted to also mention is more the balanced consumer, I would say. So those are the people that are very conscious about their well-being. They're more interested in enjoying the nature or spending time with their loved ones, or they like to buy some quality products to reward themselves, uh, really enjoy healthy living, and they really seek high-quality products and they're willing to spend a bit more for the value that they would get. So those are kind of some different types of consumers that are quite big groups in Japan. And each one is very specific. And it's really interesting to see how we can reach them through different types of marketing or different types of activities. I have Dustin from Hashi Media here with me. So Dustin, what's up with Hashi Media nowadays? Hey, Tyson. Do you know what Hashi Media does? Well, Dustin, if you haven't heard yet, Hashi Media is a rapidly growing social media and influencer marketing agency based in Tokyo. Ah, who do they help? Pretty much anyone who wants to get more customers and expand awareness in the market for their products. But they specialize in tech, gaming, and lifestyle products and can get you in front of foreign and Japanese consumers. But why go with Hashi Media when I can just hire a part-time or full-time staff member to do social media for me? Nah, that does not work. Creating viral posts is hard. Meeting and negotiating with popular influencers is even harder. And there's almost no way a part-timer or a new grad can do organic growth to a viral extent. Ah, so working with Hashi Media is a no-brainer? Duh, Dustin. I know you have a lot of experience in the food and beverage space, but yeah, could you dive a little bit deeper possibly in these different consumer types and maybe like just from a food and beverage perspective? 
Definitely. So, for example, if we think about more the family-oriented type of consumer, and also I'd like to touch the point on the household example. So usually in Japan, another point I wanted to talk about, the decision maker or the purchasing person in that household. So for that group, women are usually very strong or the ones that are deciding what's going to be bought in the family. When we think about the food and beverage space, most of the time they're either housewives, which is a typical role of the women when they have children or they'd like to take care of their family. And they're the ones that decide what to be put on the table, what to be purchased, what type of food is nutritious or interesting for the family. For example, would they focus on a healthy products so their children grow in a healthy manner? Or would they cover more indulgence products where they would enjoy on the weekends with their spouse? So there is a very interesting entry point through that segment of the population. Also, when we think about women as a kind of a decision-making head of the household, I also like to mention there that they're the ones that are watching for new trends. So if I get some example from family and friends or consumers that I've talked with in the past, women are the ones that are watching, let's say, TV shows for international products. Those are the people that are going to go to those high-end supermarkets and check what's new out there. They're the ones that would be checking on social medias or talking with the girlfriends. What is the new French wine or what is this kind of interesting plant-based meat that you can add it in your meal? So for companies, when they're trying to promote a product that can reach this large group of household or family-oriented people, they need to really concentrate on how to win the attention of women who are the ones that are purchasing the products for their family. I do advise uh, companies in a lot of industries, but uh, one industry I help is the language industry. And specifically in this case, English language schools for children. And I analyze the analytics and data, and I find that probably of the people who visit my clients' websites, around 80% are female, 85%. They're always on mobile. So usually 80% mobile. So I find that, at least in my experience, when the decision makers are mothers, they're typically searching on mobile as well. Also, women are... I would say more engaged online. So just to give one example is with one of the brands of beverage brands, actually, when we were promoting their new drink, it was more on the low alcohol end. And we were giving a campaign about win this pack of amazing drink and a tote bag. So it was kind of a gamified campaign. And even though it was more targeted at an area, we could see more women interacting, tagging their girlfriends, talking about it. So it was quite interesting to experience that. In any case, yeah, it's also the example that you mentioned and the experience that we have in the food and beverage space. Women are the ones that are making a lot of the decision in the household. Another group that maybe it's interesting to talk about is the ones that are interested in more the international space. I would say that the silver generation is a little bit more conservative on that part. But when you think about people from 55 to like to 40, around that age, those are the ones or the baby boomers that started having the first exposure to the international, traveling to the international products. Still, they didn't experience so much kind of living abroad, but 
were the ones that first started traveling abroad more extensively. And the more you go down to the generation, this interest towards international culture is enhancing. For example, if you think about, let's say, people from 25 to 40, those are the ones that already have experience living abroad. Those are the ones that are already speaking probably a second language. Those are the ones that are looking for international movies, international influence, international food and beverage. And actually, this is the, one of the target groups that I always talk with clients, introducing some new interesting products to the Japanese market. So within those kind of open-minded international trend seekers people, an interesting target group there is from 25 to 45 females. They already have some type of an income because they're already working there. They have traveled already. They're very curious. They enjoy their life. They enjoy time with their friends. Maybe they have children, maybe they don't. They're the ones that take care of their health and they're explorative about what types of products they can introduce to their diet or to their lifestyle. For example, something interesting that I want to mention for the target group is during COVID. One of the things that was interesting to observe is in our industries, you know, the no low alcohol type of beverages. You know, because of COVID in Japan, you couldn't enjoy drinking outside. So that was uh, one of the reasons why this type of alcohol beverage was introduced to the Japanese market and getting popularity. But another kind of adjacent trend was there too. How women or young women from 25 to 45 who enjoy hanging out with their friends or who enjoy exploring to be more in control. Even young men in that age group who, as you know, in Japan, there's a lot of nomikai, but people want to be more in control. They want to introduce more healthy things to their lifestyle. They don't want to over drink. So this non-low alcohol trend really exploded during COVID and even now after COVID. And a lot of international brands who are specializing in the low alcohol space could really make it happen here. Um, yeah, I saw that even Budweiser had a non-alcoholic beer yeah, in Japan. Yeah. We even had one client that was really interesting uh, for low alcohol hard seltzer. The hard seltzer category was non-existent in Japan. But because people try to enjoy something refreshing, something low alcohol, something that, you know, you can still drink at the beach or drink at the park or have with your friends at home, but still kind of keep your control and enjoy responsibly. So that was kind of an interesting trend to be observed. That is really interesting. I was also curious. I did see that trend pop on and now mm -hmm. I know why. But yeah, it makes perfect sense that they wanted to maintain being sociable, but also having control. And I think yeah. you also mentioned, I think a different type of trend leader is high schoolers. And yes. could you tell us more about that? It's a very interesting target group. I would say within the high schoolers, the girls are the ones that are trendsetting. And with some of our experts in our network, we always talk about it. An interesting example that is very, very prominent in Japan is the boba tea drink or the bubble tea. I don't know if you noticed that maybe three or four years ago, just the bubble drink shops or vendors increased so much in Japan. It was You could basically see them almost at every corner of the street. You can see high school girls drinking boba 
everywhere. And maybe one, one year later, even the salarymen were drinking boba tea on the streets. So this is a really particular group. So they are characterized with, of course, lower incomes. They don't really produce any type of income or they have some part-time job. But what is specific for them is that even though, for example, companies cannot offer premium products for them, companies can experiment with the experiences they create for those type of targets. So the interesting part of the high schoolers is that they really enjoy spending time with their peers and they'd like to, uh, for example, go to the mall or go to some interesting game center where they can uh, create some new unforgettable experiences. And what happens is that they start trying some new products They share it online with their friends. So that's how they start communicating about it. And when they go back home, they share about this new cool product that they tried, not only with their friends, but with their moms, who share also with their dads. And that's how the trends start picking up from this particular segment of the society. And the Bovoting example is one of the ones that kicked off from the high school girls, actually, and exploded throughout the whole country. Gotcha. That is funny. Yeah, I was curious how that happened. I think a lot of, of the listeners, they're probably curious about COVID as well, but how has COVID influenced, let's say, working styles and maybe purchasing behaviors? As I briefly mentioned before, so COVID was really kind of shocking experience for such a sociable kind of society as Japan because everybody knows that there is you know you go to work after work you have gatherings and then suddenly everything got closed and people had to stay at home so if you get an example the working class one interesting thing that happened there is that there were cases of you know this is the first time people spend time so much together so the whole family is in one place so there was a point where working men were renting places just to get out of their home and work in peace. So at that time, there was like an interesting happening in the real estate market or more in the rental space for either shared offices or even private apartments. In terms of the food and beverage industry, because now the whole family is together, women had to cook more or they had to purchase more for their household. So there was a lot of pressure on efficiency and how to make cooking more convenient. So in the food and beverage industry per se, there was a huge increase of the frozen food category. There was more than double digit increase in the market share of frozen ready to eat meals. Also different type of chilled food and beverage because you just buy it, warm it up and eat it. So that was one category that really pushed forward. Another category that actually is more focused on the health and that we explore more thoroughly in our newsletter market shake is more the plant-based or alternative products. So COVID was a really good point for people to slow down and really analyze what they're eating. Because you're at home, you have to prepare your own food and you realize that by eating out, you know, a lot of your health indicators were in the wrong direction. So people started exploring ways of introducing foods that would, for example, reduce the intake of fat, reduce the intake of meat, reduce the intake of salt. So a lot of, for example, plant-based products really expand their presence in Japan. Also the so-called low or no sugar or low or no salt type of products 
also picked up quite quickly in Japan. And last but not least, as we were discussing before, the no-low alcohol category as well. Because people, first of all, were not able to drink outside, but also for health reasons. So to sum up, COVID was kind of heavily influencing the convenience or the frozen category. And the second one is more on the health of the consumers. Acha, thanks for sharing that. And I guess next I wanted to dive into kind of like the differences between Japanese consumers and Western consumers. So I think for like product sizes, things like, you know, Starbucks, usually the sizes are smaller, McDonald's as well. The one exception would be Costco, where people told Costco they would probably fail because Japanese consumers don't want to buy something that big, but Costco proved them wrong. But I'm kind of curious, are there any differences in maybe like purchase sizes? In general, when we look at consumers in Japan and, you know, everybody has observed that the packaging is smaller, as you were just explaining. And the reason why is that Japanese homes in general are way smaller than Western homes. When you go to an apartment, for example, you can see that the kitchen is way smaller, the fridge is small, the cupboards are smaller. So consumers don't have the ability to even store products that are in larger packings. So this is one of the reasons why uh, Japanese products are relatively smaller in terms of size. Another factor that also influences the packaging is also the consuming patterns or the convenience of consuming. So for example, when you go to 7-Eleven or any type of convenience stores, there's a lot of snacks that are really, really small packaging, like 100 grams or 50 grams, because people just like to grab something, eat it on the way or have it in a regulated portion. For example, when you're in Europe or any other Western countries, you would rather buy a bigger size and just indulge the whole day. Here is just you grab a smaller one and just continue with the day. Probably as some of our listeners have explored that, you know, you cannot just start eating on the street. So something quick, easy to consume or sealable package is way more convenient for the consumers than a large bulky product. It's interesting that you mentioned Costco, you know, that they made it with the big packaging. Just I wanted to highlight two points there. The first one, of course, Costco has large packaging, but also within the large package, you can find out smaller packaging within the big package for those type of proportionate consumption occasions. And the second thing is that Costco is not only putting emphasis on the larger pack, but more on the experience. So Costco is usually in the suburban areas. So when people go there, they consider it as a experience or like the daily retail Disneyland. So people just go there for a whole day to really enjoy going through the racks, exploring those new products, tasting, experiencing, touching these really interesting and new packages and products for them. So it's a different type of positioning with Costco if you compare it with the different other retail stores. Based on my experience of going to Costco, you often see couples or families go there. And I think another equivalent is Tokyo Hands as well, which is a very big department store, but they have a lot of cool things. And a lot of times they have things that you'll see for the first time or like they only have it there. But to move on, so I think Japan is very unique in that 
there's a lot of i'll say seasons to buy things you know like valentine's white day halloween christmas obon could you tell us maybe more about the yearly seasonal cycle for products and purchases this is a very kind of unique positioning of japan and brands are especially influencing their decision depending on those uh, different seasonal cycles. So for example, of course, as you were mentioning, we have the large holidays, which are Christmas, famous with its uh, KFC chicken or the Valentine's and White Days, very popular with the chocolate culture. But we also have the seasons. So in Japan, it's very interesting that each season has its specificity. So for example, if we take the food and beverage sector each season is characterized by a different product or fruit so for example in summers watermelon products a lot of melon products ranging from ice creams through smoothies through even drinks and lattes now it's winter here so a lot of grapes interestingly strawberries so depending on the season there are different types of products or staples that are pushed forward and companies are innovating their products throughout the way. So this really influences the new product development locally. So for example, Starbucks is a really great company that is following those trends. Hagendas for the ice cream side. So if international brands are having products that are specific in flavors or are interested to localize to the local taste, having those seasons in mind could be a really good strategy to reach to the right target. Gotcha. That makes sense. What I like if targeting the consumer market is you can do campaigns for things like a Christmas, Valentine's, uh, White Day, Halloween. They also have Ochugen and Osable, where it's a gift-giving season. And I think there has been some foreign consumer product goods who have been trying to sneak themselves into the Ochugen and Osable. Do you know what months Ochugen and Osable is I forgot. Yes, Ochugen is in August, I believe, and Osebo is uh, towards the end of the year. And it's really characterized with sending a gift to either somebody that is superior than you, so for example, your boss or your teacher, and really preparing a special present for them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scaling Japan. In addition to serving as your fine host, I also provide advisory and coaching services to business owners who want to 2x, 5x, and even 10x their business. So stop holding your company and your team and your employees back and let me help you and your company scale. Find more information at scalingyourcompany.com. Now back to the episode. At least for one coin English, our landlords were pretty good about giving us gifts during those seasons i'll see this big box of juices and oh yeah it's a sable also it's uh i was really surprised to see that this year in august i was in fukuoka and found this really local market uh, every supermarket has their own way of promoting those kind of bundles of products you can give to your friends and there was also ice cream of Hagen Dance and Godiva type of uh, bundles. I was like, oh, I guess uh, international companies in Japan are also taking on that occasion. 
which is really, really interesting to observe because usually you see mainly Japanese products such as beers or even noodles or fruits. So it was really, really nice surprise to see also internationals jumping on that. Yes, I think just anyone who's in the consumer space, there are a lot of holidays and seasons and events in Japan that you can take advantage of to launch a campaign to deliver something unique to the customers. And I guess my next topic was going to be during the year, are there periods of low and maybe high consumption? Mm -hmm. And uh, for example, in the gym space, and the language learning space, January is often peak season. People make their New Year's commitments and they're ready to start. So you really got to get prepared like three months in advance for the crazy season. But also in the gym case, it's summer body. In the one or two months before August, people start thinking about, oh, I need to lose weight so I can go to the beach. <laughs> Those are really interesting examples. And uh, of course, I can give a few examples from the FMB space. An interesting one is the chocolate one. As you were just talking about Valentine's and White Day, a large percent of a company sales, especially of the premium chocolate ones like Godiva or Maison du Chocolat or some other different brands, they make a huge percent of their sales, maybe from 30 to 50% of sales throughout those holidays. Because for Valentine's Day, men have to give chocolate to the women. And for white days, the opposite. And those are kind of starts towards the end of January, uh, this type of hype, and goes through February and March. However, towards summer, when in Japan it gets extremely hot, the weather is very kind of sticky and humid, the chocolate consumption goes down because most of the people are focusing on switching towards ice cream, which is kind of adjacent category or something else to consume. So, for example, in the chocolate, the beginning of the year is the stronger season rather than the summer. Also, if you compare the wine and beer, that's probably quite similar to the Western markets, but in the winter or colder months, more warmer drinks such as wine or sake or shochu are consumed. Where in the summer, even when you see more promotional campaigns or even social media campaigns, beers or more hard seltzers are popular for consumptions and i think that's why there are those type of holidays or seasonal campaigns to kind of boost the consumption of particular categories throughout the year of course the consumption of beer is really high throughout the summer but one of the really popular present bundles in new year is actually beers so it could be related to uh, the consumption patterns Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, it's interesting to hear about the high amount of, let's say, purchasing. I think you said mentioned like 30 to 50% for some of those chocolate or maybe like dessert companies. And they kind of remind me of in terms of like, you know, online courses or anything that's really related to like Black Friday and Cyber Mondays. Yes. Companies would often make like 30% of their sales. Yeah. And so moving on. So I guess what sources do customers trust for making buying decisions in Japan? So for example, in the language school industry, one tactic that people use is they have some professor that says their learning method is amazing from some university that people have heard of. So that's one way to get established trust for your consumer product or service. Also, it's having celebrities 
like using your service in the language industry. And the other one is uh, probably like TOEIC certifications. I know in the food industry, I think, you know, like obviously taste testings, uh, TV commercials, Tavilog, also like uh, B grade, you know, they have A grade, B grade, they call it like B grade or BQ food. A lot of times I'll see like, at least on the lower end of food, they'll say like, oh, this food won the, the B grade championship. So you should give it a try. Yes, I know those are common ones for language and food industry, but could you tell me maybe more about influencers? So in terms of influencers or key opinion leaders, they have a huge part of consumer perception. I think you briefly mentioned something around celebrities learning in the language school industry, and it's pretty similar for the food and beverage industry as well. So there are two types of key opinion leaders that usually companies would collaborate with. So the first one is more on influencers that are directly connected with the brand or the type of category. An example could be, uh, let's say, a cocktail performer or a beverage type of bartender is quite popular on Instagram or Twitter. And if you collaborate with them to present your new drink or beverage on the market, could be a really great way to connect with your consumer for the first time. An example that we recently observed was a PR campaign of Santori with a very, very popular cocktail performer called Nami in Japan. And it's a good way, you know, a safe way to connect with your audience. There is also an adjacent way of collaborating with influencers. So this is really, uh, the first one is more related with people within the food and beverage space. The second one is more, it's not necessary your influencer to be within the industry. Sometimes, for example, the Bombay Sapphire brand, uh, which is a beverage, collaborated with a Japanese freestyle footballer. Or for example, an energy drink can collaborate with a gamer. So there could be those type of occasion-based influencers that can really support your brand. Of course, uh, just to specify a few key points around collaborating with KOLs in Japan, it could be very costly if you'd like to, of course, engage with somebody that is quite famous. So it's really important to select the right person that really resonates with the brand that is going to kind of use the product in a more natural way so it doesn't look fake. Because people really kind of look for advice or examples from their admired influencer. I want to mention two more different ways that could really enhance introducing your new product to Japan or touching, you know, basis with the Japanese consumers and to have it in mind. One thing uh, that is quite popular among Japanese consumers is actually forums. So consumers are usually always check in advance before buying something. I found statistics that about 70% of people or kind of three quarters of the population always check first online kind of through forums or feedback from friends or asking somebody online if they have seen the product, touched the product, have some type of feedback about the product before they actually purchase it. So it's very important to kind of have a good rapport with those early adopters because that's going to spread out online and people are going to look for such type of information. What are some forums that people look at? The most popular one is in Yahoo, actually. So I have <laughs> several friends that always go to Yahoo, check the forum, look for 
some feedback and understand what are people thinking about. Another one is also through Twitter because it's anonymous and you don't really know who's the person behind a comment. A lot of the feedback also happened on Twitter. So those are two channels that I know are quite well used in Japan for feedback search. So the last question for this episode will be for influencers, how much would someone expect to pay? Usually in Japan, at least what we've observed through our work with influencer is that there's always an intermediary, for example, an agency that is going to have a pool of influencers and you need to closely collaborate with them on the selection, payments and so on. So expect that you're not going to directly work with somebody, but there's going to be somebody in between. And also depending on the type of influencer. So for example, there are micro influencers that are up to 10K of followers, uh, more macro influencers that are up to 100K. And of course, the large stars where have more than 100K of influencers. So depending on the size of the followers, it could be from 10 yen per follower, and going upwards. So usually when you engage with KOLs in Japan, you need to be mindful or you need to know that you have to invest in that space and be patient for the communication, for establishing good rapport and expressing what are your expectations in the end of the day from this collaboration. I think another thing on our list was crowdfunding. And I think for those who are interested in crowdfunding, Gourmet Pro are experts in crowdfunding. And so I will link to an episode with your colleague, Vincent, in the show notes. And two last points was, if you have a Japan Good Design Award, or if you get a JCR, in Japanese, it's Nihon Konsuma Research. I'm not sure what it is in English, but it's uh, probably Japan Consumer Research. They have uh, badges for quality. But uh, yeah, so those are a couple other ways to establish trust. And uh, thank you so much, Paulina, for sharing so much excellent and detailed knowledge and helping us dive deeper into the consumer space. Thank you, Tyson. Thank you for having me. And of course, if any of the listeners have any questions, we'll be happy to welcome them. We'll be linking to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And yeah, if anyone needs help in the food and beverage space with your market entry gourmet pro are the experts and we'll also link to their website too thank you so much thank you